it's, it's not a, why can't I do it? But why don't I do it? Why not? If you have a list of every reason it's not going to work or why you can't do it, well, you just developed your to-do list. Welcome to Startupville, the show where we discuss what it's like to build a tech startup and a startup ecosystem in a small city. I'm Mike Wolsfeld, our host is Dan Gold, and we're having conversations with tech leaders in our community about how they're working through the current global economic crisis and the larger implications on their sectors. Today we're talking with Monique Samer, founder and CEO of Maven Water and Environment, her second clean tech startup in Saskatoon that's applying the best of modern technology to water treatment in industrial sectors. We talked with Monique Samer about her journey in founding, building, and selling her first startup, and how she's taken everything she's learned into building her next company. Monique has flipped conventional norms on their head multiple times, so we talked more about her thoughts on disruption, how she's brought her innovations to market, and how her team has been working through the new normal to continue their growth. Welcome to Startupville. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place and Martin Charlton Communications. Hello and welcome to this episode of Startupville. Today I am privileged to have Monique Simer with us, founder and CEO of Maven Water and Environment. Monique, welcome. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Monique, uh, these are strange times, but beyond the times that we're living in, you've been working on some fantastically interesting projects. I'd like to speak about that in just a second. But for people who aren't aware of of your background, uh, I, I hate to say give us the elevator pitch about you because you never say that to another human being. But what? give me a quick introduction about you and, and a little bit on Maven as well. It's so weird to talk about myself. Um, I'll talk about Maven and science and innovation all day long. But about myself, it just feels weird. Um, so my educational background, what I started out with, was a PhD in microbiology. And then I, I actually did a, my first postdoc related to vaccine development and infectious disease. It was not the right fit for me. Um, but I then went into uh, an odd blend of geochemistry and biology. And I just fell in love with that blending of different areas. And so... Um, I pursued that forward in a career and uh, oh, I should also mention I started off also in my uh, PhD doing something called bioinformatics. So like computer programming for biological systems. So all the nerd stuff in one, you got geochemistry, rocks, microbiology, bacteria, and the computers. Um, and then I turned out not really being able to find a job. So I had a government job for a year, not the right fit. And I thought, what the heck am I going to do with these degrees? And um, it turns out that business is a lot like science. So I started up a company that was 2009. So, so as my uh, research provided by Mike uh, says, was that Contango? Yeah, that was. In 2009, I founded Contango. Um, we were the first, uh, the first company to commercialize environmental uh, microbiology, metagenomic services, we call them. So if you've heard of like the companies that will sample your poop and tell you if you're healthy or not based on your gut and your gut microbes, we could do that for the environment. It's, it's fascinating. And, and you transitioned out of that organization. So you transitioned from there. So the step one was you, you've worked, 
you've worded it like this. I'm I don't mean to offend. You'd started with the nerd stuff. You did the government thing. Wasn't a fit. You went and launched your own organization. What was the decision at that point whilst you had an organization up and running that you wanted to do something else? What what was the opportunity that went, bing, I want to do X? Yeah. You can always call it nerd stuff. I still do a lot of nerd stuff all the time. That keeps it fun. Um, but I do business nerd stuff too, as well as science. So one of the reasons for, for selling was um, at that point I had... Um, a, a highly profitable, well-running company uh, doing things uh, largely in the environmental sector for mining, oil and gas, water treatment. But we had uh, really focused the company on uh, the laboratories and pilot systems and the conceptual design, so designing things. And I really wanted to go to the next level to building them. And we were building a few and it wasn't you know, going as good as I'd like. And at the same time, a publicly traded company approached us that was looking at expanding their environmental side. They're actually a mine that owned an environmental company and it looked like the right fit at the right time. You know, you, you, you make your decisions based on the best information you have at, at any given point. And uh, so after about two years of deliberation and negotiation, made the sale. And uh, I knew within about six months it wasn't gonna be right for me. They took things in a very different direction than I understood, I had thought they would. And, you know, the funny thing is every entrepreneur I know that I talked to before I sold told me, Monique, it's not going to work out the way you're talking about. You're going to end up moving on. It's not going to come through the way you think. And I said, no, 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 no. This is going to be different. And unfortunately it wasn't, but, um, you know, I did a lot of soul searching and decided I still want to do something like what I set out to do. And I've got some ideas on how to do it now. So. Yeah. So how did you approach that time of change as, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, there's always this quest and, and the nerd or the science side of you is, here's a problem. This is what I think I'd like to do with it. And then the ultimate piece comes onto this. How do I monetize this? Because ultimately, that's the important piece for having a roof over your head. So what what were the lessons that you learned the first time to doing it the second time? And what was it you want to wanted to explore? What was the difference? What was it the feeling that you were like, okay, I'm not fulfilled by this, I want to do that? Yeah, so um I think there's a lot of things similar across many types of business, but there's also um many different ways you can choose to grow a business. So uh, with Contango, I started that up with about $30,000 of my own savings and paid that off in a couple of months. We were cash flow positive, never took on debt, just always bootstrapped it, meaning like reinvesting our money, tried not to use too much jargon. So reinvest any profits back into new, new development and growth. And, and that's one way of going about it. Um, it also kind of means like after a decade, you kind of have that, if you think about a business like a house, well, you can choose to do some renovations if you want. There's things you could do. But if you're living in that house, you know, you got to figure out what you're going to be able to do. It's, and, and sometimes you say, okay, that's not worth changing. It's okay as it is to live with it, you know? And so, uh, you know, when, when I decided to leave, I actually didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that it wasn't 
the fit for me anymore. I wasn't going to be able to um, have the influence or the impact that, that I wanted to. And so um, I, I knew it was time to leave. And actually, you know, I like to speak really openly about mental health too, because that's such an important topic. And so I actually um, kind of entered a bit of a depression through that time, figuring out and realizing this was the wrong choice. But within a few weeks of getting out, I had no idea what I was going to do still. And I was exploring all kinds of opportunities. I was thinking of working somewhere else, like as an employee, I was thinking of, you know, am I going to uh, join a different business, like with, start some totally different sector. And after a few weeks and then months of soul searching, I realized, no, I actually really love this stuff. And I still have the passion for what I set out to do. And so that's when I started thinking about every mistake I've ever made. <laughs> uh, as, a, as a scientist, there is an element of analyzing everything, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I started thinking, and, you know, not from a, a sense of beating myself up, but in a sense of building a new house. If you're going to build a brand new house rather than renovate, what would you do different? What would be on your wish list? And this time, I'm not bootstrapping off of having to have a little bit of money and inch and inch and inch and essentially build the house as you're living in it. I had some money built up now from having sold a company and from my savings. And I thought, okay, how am I, what would I really want to build? How would it operate? How would it, it's not just what do we sell, but how does it operate? How do we reward people in the company? Um, what is the exit strategy for this new business or you know, how does it uh, continue on forever? And, and really looked at that foundationally as a startup of this company. I'm so glad that with your sincerity and your openness in referring to mental well-being and, and the issues that come from lots of founders uh, that I've spoken to historically and when I've gone through transition, uh, a period of change, uh, very often the things that I hear, uh, Paul Martin is is my chair and he's a, he's a business mentor to a lot of people. One of the things that Paul said was, when you're the person that founded a company and you've sold it on or you change your status to suddenly being a part of a larger organization, your identity is affected because how the relationship of people, uh, the, the status of the relationship and how people dealt with you and considered you suddenly it's not your name above the door anymore. It's not your property. It's someone else's. And it, it's realizing that is such a different dynamic where suddenly it's not yours to say, I will do X, Y, and Z. You're going to someone else to say, I think we should do X, Y, and Z. So I truly appreciate what you've just said. I, I am intrigued with your your perspective on business, you seem to be someone who isn't just passionate about the sciences, the hard sciences, but someone who's actually passionate about business. Um, it's it's not something I see super commonly. Normally, you've got someone who's really passionate about one side or the other, and both have an appreciation and a respect for each other. But to have someone who truly transitions, both that's not incredibly common. What is the spark with business for you? So what I think I'm really passionate about is problem solving and optimizing. So 
I think that can apply to anything. That's actually something that I realized. Um, I was with the government for a year. I mentioned I didn't say that I'd actually got fired. No, no, uh, no fault or anything like that. Okay, there's no reason other than it just really wasn't a good fit. And um, I did a lot of soul searching because I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? I was essentially disenchanted with science because of everything that I'd gone through in my experiences there. And I thought, I just don't even want to be a scientist anymore. And so I spent some time writing down, why did I ever become a scientist? What do I like about science? And it turns out, and then I thought, okay, well, if these are things I like about science, what other jobs, what other careers or professions have similar things? problem solving, things that change day to day on you, um, problems that come to you rather than you seeking out, a pro like, you know, different things like that. Um, things that you can actually tweak a variable and see how it does. And you can do that in business all the time. So especially in the startup mode and in uh, very much in startup mode compared to an established company, that's what I like. You know, you, you do a bit and you tweak, do a bit and you tweak. And it's very similar to running experiments. You just make sure you know what variables are, are affecting what so you can optimize. Iterate measure, iterate measure. Um, I'm, I'm so honored to see your passion for this because it's, it's the same thing that uh, makes me spark. And just by the way, I'm going to totally destroy this interview at this point. I love your wall behind you. That is so, so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I so like rocks. Beautiful. It's yeah, some nice agate. There's definitely a passion there. Um, so let's get on to talking about Maven Water and Environment. It's a very different organization to the one that you established before. Obviously, you've mentioned, you know, learning the lessons from what went before. Um, I will I will read what I have in front of me, because again, Mike's done an amazing job. And apologies, I'm looking over here. Uh, advancing the way water management and treatment is approached in mining and oil and gas industries. In a nutshell, this time a proper elevator pitch, apart from that bit. Um, tell me the bigger picture of what Maven Water and Environment is. So in a nutshell, if I was to put it really uh, tight, we, you could kind of think of us for the water industry, what Tesla was for the automotive industry. So if you think of Tesla, well, there was already the ability to make batteries, there was already cars, but no one was putting these technologies together. So what we're doing is a lot of the technologies I've done before for a long time that involve biological processes that are more sustainable, we're applying piles of technology to it to give it the depth of understanding that we need to make it um, really predictable so that you can go ahead and use it for a wide range of industries. So what was the inspiration for doing this? How did you land on this was, this was the problem? This was where you wanted to solve the problem? Well, um, even at Contango and also in my postdoc in, in Geochem, I worked a lot in mining water treatment. So how do you get metals and metalloids and all these things out of water? Um, it's actually a really interesting question because most municipal water treatment systems don't even worry about it. They just put that stuff out there because there's different regulations. So mines and oil and gas actually need to deal with the stuff. So there's a new set of problems. And 
so I like this kind of, you know, the blue sky area where it's like, okay, here's a problem. What can we do? And all of the water treatment systems that are considered traditional or conventional, I mean, they were developed decades ago, like half a century ago. And they are heavy on electricity and chemicals and having operators there. And it's like, man, we've got all this other technology. Why aren't we doing something a little bit better? Why aren't we improving upon this? Um, so kind of like switching from a combustion car to a battery car. It's not just a plug and play switch and you got to do a lot of convincing of people and you got to show it. And so um, the decade I had Contango, I listened to all the feedback that we're getting from our regulators, the local stakeholders, the clients, everything that they wished they could have been having. And at the time I thought, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. And one of the things actually, um, all of my brothers have said this to me at one point or another, and they're all involved in other businesses too, but they're, they're, they're kind of rationale. And, and I've got this, we tease, it's a bit of an affliction. It's, it's not a, why can't I do it? but why don't I do it? Why not? If you have a list of every reason it's not going to work or why you can't do it, well, you just developed your to-do list. And so a lot of it was technology related. Well, we need to develop a machine learning algorithm for this. We need to develop um, a heuristic for this, this one here. And we just started throwing piles of tech at it. When it comes to disruption, and a marketplace which is very established with traditional technology, um, or we do it this way because it's always been done this way, uh, narratives. How do you start, I, I hate to use the word convincing, how do you start educating others that there could be another way, that they could be involved, and I don't know, I could be wrong on this, they could be involved in a pilot project or they could be involved in X, Y, or Z. How do you educate them to get them to the next stage of feeling comfortable and confident that this is worth a try doing something different. Yeah. Um, it's different in every situation. You know, if you even think about it in terms of people convincing individual humans to try a different diet, for example, you're going to have to try a different tactic with different people. So we are actually, um, and different people learn differently. So we're, taking a lot of different avenues in the way that we're approaching that. Um, everything from doing uh, explainer videos and webinars and educational blogs, courses and outreach. But when I'm talking directly, like say I'm talking to someone um, that's the environmental director for a mine or in the oil sands or something, usually it starts with a discussion of, well, what are you currently using? And what do you like about it? How, how is it working for you? Okay, then you know what does work? So, okay, well, how are these other things working that you didn't mention? Would you like to improve those? Would you like to decrease your operating costs? Uh, you know, where are your actual pains that we could solve? And then we focus on trying to, to solve the pains for them. And sometimes that's actually in doing things where we can mesh a lot of the technologies together. So we understand the active treatment technologies. So we can pair together these newer ones. And by active, I mean the ones that are like chemicals and electricity. And so we can mesh these things together really nicely because we have the understanding. And, and that usually helps ease them into it. Um, the regulators are a totally different story too because they want different assurances, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting that when you look at Tesla, for example, as, as a disruptive company, the leader 
of said organization is a disturber let's say he he'll look at a rock and he'll give it a kick and then just wait to see what your reaction is going to be when you haven't got the the resources or you're when you're not an elon musk we're at that point of going there's only so hard that you can kick the rock do you think that you mentioned there almost this this hybrid roadmap that okay maybe they're not going to jump immediately to this new technology but showing them there's a better way by marrying um traditional tech and modern uh processes is a way to get them moving slowly it's almost like that that giant oil tanker moving through the through the water someone's got to slam the brakes on give a warning for 30 30 miles it's going to take a while is that a factor Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I kind of smile on two things here. So one is, uh, you know, kind of being a disturber. And I just have to laugh because um, I actually spent several years as an appointed advisor on innovation to the Ministry of Economy in Canada, um, back with the Harper government. And there was a panel of like, university pre- pre- uh, presidents, uh, venture capitalists, an amazing think tank of innovators and scientific minds like the quantum um, um, computing and everything and I was sitting there with some of the ministers and we're talking about something and I've always spoke my mind and the chair of the committee looks over at me and I hope I can say this word on the podcast but look no word of a lie looks at me and goes you're quite a shit disturber aren't you <laughs> I just I went my someone goes I was like I, I, I apologize if I overstepped and he goes no that's exactly why we want someone like you on this committee because when you're in a safe place and you can speak up and you can talk about these things um, I, I took offense to being called a woman scientist and a woman entrepreneur. So I'm a scientist and I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't yeah. feel I need to have a qualifier on that. Yeah, no. And um, um, why should you? Uh, I also, I congratulate you for using the word that I was avoiding. I, I celebrate that. Please carry on. You might need to edit it out. Sorry. No, no, no. We're leaving that in. Mike, that's staying in. Yeah. So then to be, um, to to like, I think the approach that I've taken generally is to be highly collaborative. So even though we are a consulting firm and we do a lot of um, traditional environmental and water management consulting and helping through the permitting processes, technology selections, um, we've actually, um, and this is true of my last company too, is a large portion of our work actually comes from other consulting firms and even the major consulting firms because we're doing something a bit different than they can do. And they haven't looked into that specialization or that technology development or kind of pushing that next step. Um, a lot of times I've just heard, yeah, well, and they're like, well, why aren't you guys doing this? Like you could be. And it's, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's out of our risk profile. And to me, it's not risky. To me, it's like a calculated path and, you know, but having that agility to again, tweak and optimize, just like I do in business, to do that with technology, large companies don't often have that capability to be that adaptable. Completely agree. Agility is such an important mindset. uh, And I truly believe it's a mindset rather than it being an action uh, in itself. As startups go, or as organizations go, a lot of a startup uh, organizations in our province are are very much um, uh, remote working or a few people around a desk. You have 
proper physical space that you need as a necessity of your organization. During this COVID-19 pandemic, we're, you know, we're a couple of months into this now. Uh, how have you found operationally, and, and only go as far into details as you want, but how have you found operationally when you when you need to be in physical spaces to make the work work, uh, how has that been uh, affected? And, and how do you work with your team to to bring in processes of social distancing or physical distancing between each other and reporting process and how you deal with people, human beings, not employees, but human beings in a time that can be incredibly stressful. Yeah. Um, man, I could probably talk about this for an hour itself. <laughs> okay. So um, the remote work. So yes, we do physically work together. Even we've actually invested in uh, working with a builder in Saskatoon who's building up a brand new research facility. We're going to be rent uh, leasing it from them, but this is a multi-million dollar uh, laboratory and pilot facility that's getting built right here in Saskatoon. Um, so that's not the kind of thing that happens very frequently around Saskatchewan, definitely not by a startup. So we're decided to invest in our future and the way that we're going to grow the business. And so we're, we built that out to have at least over, well, we were looking at 50 to 70 people there in the next five to seven years. So we were building that for the long term. We aren't going to move in there for another six weeks or so. So we're still moving forward on that. We've downsized and we've kind of just tightened up and said, okay, well, what can, what's our bare minimum right now? Taking the technology thing of saying the minimum viable product, what's the minimum we need to be able to hit the ground running in there right now? And, you know, taking that startup mentality of like, well, so what if we're using folding chairs instead of, you know, like whatever, like we don't need carpet, just give us cement, we're good. And our builders would be fantastic at working with us on that. So, you know, moving things together and being able to actually be in the same space. Um, but right now we're renting at Innovation Place. And uh, it's been really good there, too, because we do have quite a bit of space and area. And um, those who do need to be in for the greenhouses and labs can do so and spread out. I mean, when you're already operating labs and greenhouses, and I mean, I come from a background where, like, I used to teach, uh, be the teaching assistant for medical virology for a few years. We're all pretty well equipped to know how to operate, how to, you know, um, to handle things in a, um, what you call it? I'm trying to use the right wording in terms of COVID, but just, you know, in a safe way would probably be the best way to stay here. So um, the, th the other part is, is our whole company, even though we do have to physically be together sometimes for work and to, to do hands-on, we're all used to remote working. We've always had a policy of do your work when you want to do your work and when works for you. You're a morning person, work in the morning. You're an evening person, do that. It's pouring rain this weekend and you have nothing else to do, get your work done then. So everybody already was set up to remote work. Um, all the like video conferencing and stuff, we already had all that set up. I personally have spent about 50% of my time on the road over the last couple of years anyways, uh, with work largely, although I do like fun travel too. <laughs> but um, I did some good trips there when I was unemployed for a little while. But um, uh, that's a, a total tangent. But, um, you know, we're already set up for all this remote working. So we said, let us know what else you need to, like, just top up what you're doing from home. Like, I've actually got a, a giant whiteboard on rollers in the middle of my kitchen now. <laughs> we do conference calls with it. Um, but those types of aspects. But, I mean, that's the logistics. That's not the people, right? So right when we started, um, 
I had already planned to have a, a workshop um, with Jolene Watson from Clarity Coaching. And she does a lot of work with Myers-Briggs and personality types. Um, and I, I get there's pros and cons to, to Myers-Briggs and whatnot, but I've just found the way that she facilitates is very helpful to the whole group. So we were actually, um, on March 1st, we had seven employees. We had four more start March 9th, and we had six more planned to be hired in April. So we had this whole onboarding process that revolved around getting to know the team and these team dynamics. And so unfortunately we had to hit the brakes on the new hires, but uh, we held, um, uh, Jolene changed it into an online workshop for us about um, stress management by personality type. And I think that really helped, at least I've been hearing feedback from the team that that really helped to recognize what the stress looked like for different people and what actions can you take for yourself and also for others in recognizing that stress for somebody else might not look like the way you think stress looks like, and we all manifest it differently. So acknowledging those differences, I think is really important in these times. Do you think, do you think that your journey and your experiences from Contango and that journey has led to you being a more compassionate leader? Oh yeah. I hope so. I, um, I think my leadership style and, and also who I am as a person has changed over the 11 years that I've been running businesses. Um, and I hope that will continue to change and evolve for the better. Um, one thing that I've actually been, it's related, but maybe a little tangent, but I think worth mentioning is um, I talked before about, you know, the difficulties and mental health challenges of, of, you know, selling a company. Well, something that I actually found actually prepared me really well for this COVID challenges that we're in right now is when I finally had to uh, make the choice to leave my last company and, and the new company it was, is um, it was almost like going through the grief of losing something. And even though I was okay with what I was walking away from, I had to accept that the dream I had was not going to happen. And it was like, the grief of losing a dream or a possibility. Mm -hmm. And I see that happening. So, so many people like, and even in myself with the plans I had for the year with Maven and this big facility, and we were going to have this kickoff and I was, I was supposed to be building business in Chile a couple weeks ago. And so there's a sense of grief for what is lost for your plans, whether it's a business or your summer vacation plans or, your peace and quiet at home without homeschooling. <laughs> you know, there's the stress, but there's also an amount of grief of the losses of our plans, I think that's going on. So I'm trying to be aware of that too, um, with, with what everyone's dealing with. There's an interesting science. There's a whole area on, on how we biologically, biologically react to expectations and then the disappointment that comes with it. And, um, uh, I, I spoke to uh, a, a person called uh, Abigail Posner, who's uh, who works for Google, and we had this very discussion. And it's it's fascinating to see how goal setting can be incredibly important, critically important. Uh, planning, especially when you're building out the plans for an organisation, and you're going to have employees, and you need to look at a balance sheet. 
but also the element of the agility that we spoke of earlier, the importance to um, be able to accept change and deal with change and and emotionally engage with other people around change or uncertainty and the disappointment that comes with it as well. Um, I honestly could spend days talking to you on this. Um, I love this talk. Goal setting to an outcome rather than to an activity. Absolutely. For me, that enables agility. Because if your goal, if you're outcome oriented or deliverable oriented rather than activity and task, it enables that agility. But yeah, it could Com- be a couple hours to talk about it. <laughs> Completely. Because that way, if if you need that sliding rule or that flexibility or something doesn't get delivered on time, um, it also manages the emotions around it. It's it's a fascinating area. Um, I'm so glad that you're using Jolene. She's, she's brilliant. She's a lovely human being as well. Um, to find out more information about your organization, uh, mavenwe.com is what I have in front of me. Uh, I like to give people the opportunity to connect with our guests here on Startupville. Uh, If you're up for this, how could people get in touch with you? LinkedIn is a great place. Um, I'm pretty active on there. So you can always reach out, send me a message or put a comment on one of my posts. And that's a great way to reach me. Um, Or we also have on the website, uh, different like contact us. And being a small group right now, I can guarantee you I see every one of those. So, <laughs> Monique, thank you so much for joining me here on Startupville. Thanks very much for having me. It was a great conversation and hopefully we'll uh, continue on with several topics in the future. You can count on it. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place, helping grow the tech sector in Saskatchewan, Canada, and is produced in partnership with Martin Charlton Communications at WeTellYourStories.ca. The show is produced by me, Mike Wolsfeld, and our host, Dan Gold. Our theme music is from GG Riggs and Reactor Productions. Learn more about us and our guests at innovationplace.com startupville, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Startupville Pod. See you next time on Startupville.